You're listening to another great message from Northside Community Church. Guys, it was a long while ago, but I can still remember very clearly the Sunday morning routine when I was a little boy. I was living in Glenbrook with my parents up on the lower Blue Mountains. And every Sunday morning, it was the same routine where my brother and I would get up early. Um, My parents would sort of lay out our clothes. I was just about, I don't know, maybe five, uh, barely five. And uh, then we'd make the 15 or 20 minute journey as it was then down Lapston Hill, down to the wonderful town of Penrith. And there, my parents would meet up with about six or eight other people and we'd meet at the Country Women's Association Hall in Penrith and uh, we would clear that place up from all the uh, sort of evidence of the party the night before, beer bottles and cigarette butts. I can remember my first introduction to cigarette butts sweeping them as a little boy and beer bottles everywhere. Uh, Clearly, the the people who were to become the foundation members of Penrith Church of Christ, they'd negotiated a, a deal with the Country Women's Association, which didn't include cleaning, which uh, probably lowered the rental price, I guess, a little bit. So what would happen then is we'd put a table in the middle of this little old wooden-based, little wooden floor hall, and somebody would put a, a lace cloth over the table, and they'd set up the communion, and then we'd sit around in a semicircle, I think at one point we kids were taken off to one side and given a few Bible stories. And then either my dad or Mr Ellis, who was the other, the head of the other family who was meeting, they would bring a word, just a, a word from God, not a full sermon, but just some sort of like a devotional thought. What we were seeing there was th- these were the foundation members, my, my parents and others, the foundation members of what was to become known as the Penrith Church of Christ, still exists today, and, and quite, a, quite a reasonably strong church. They eventually bought land, up in David Street, they built a little hall. I can remember the hall. They built the church after we had left. So that was my early exposure to church. It was small. It was very casual. It was very intimate. But these guys had a great heart. They had a big vision. My dad was a great visionary. He was a very successful businessman. He applied his vision to the Lord's work. And he, looking back, he was helping to shape the vision of these early pioneers of what was to become a great church. Um, they had a great sense of destiny. They believed God had called them to something. And nothing much changed when I went to Wiley Park Church of Christ, which doesn't even exist now. But I went there in my teenage years up until the age of 16. And that church, whereas the, the church at Penrith was serviced by just the lay, lay people, lay leaders, we'd bring a few chaplains from the RAAF base in occasionally. At Wiley Park, it was serviced by mainly theological students from, from the, what was then the Woolwich Bible College, the forerunner of, uh, of ACOM. So guys, here's the thing. Up until I was 16, when I went to Perth, I had never been in a church with a full-time minister. Had never known what it was to have anything other than a lay leader or a student who was being trialled on a church that I heard later on was, if you could survive Wiley Park Church of Christ, you could survive anything. Uh, I heard that in later years, which probably explains some of the meetings I heard from uh, my parents' lounge room at different times, a lot of always squabbling uh, that particular church. You know, sometimes I wonder, I, I sort of envy people who've grown up in a multi-staff church, numbers of you here tonight, or churches where they're being serviced by a prominent minister, some great Bible teacher, uh, or some renowned preacher, or you, you've, you've grown up in an impressive building. I, I sometimes envy those kind of people. But then I think a little bit more, and I think, you know what, I really don't. Because in those early formative years, I learned a lot about the invincibility of the church. 
The fact that I was involved in small, struggling little churches. I learned a lot about the invincibility. It has nothing to do with size. Nothing to do with the charisma of the leader. Nothing finally to do with the quality of the buildings. I've been blessed more than most with with great buildings during my ministry, including this one. But it has nothing to do with those things. Here's the thing. The invincibility of the church is directly dependent on the promise of Jesus made in his decisive and definitive statement, I will build my church. He said that to his disciples. I will build my church. That that statement was made 2,000 years ago. And today, one third of the world's population self-identify with the Christian church, claim to have some allegiance to Jesus Christ. And do you know that there are parts of the world where the Christian faith is growing faster than it has ever grown before? Now, we in the West, I mean, we lament the closure of churches. We, we lament the fact that church attendance is in decline. But you've got to get a big picture. When Jesus said, you know, I will build my church, he hasn't failed. There's no way in the world that he's failed. It is growing. It is being built. There's a place in Boston called the Centre of Global Christianity. And it's a research, it's a research organisation. And they just study permanently trends in Christianity around the world. They list the top 20 countries where Christianity is growing faster than in any other country. There are 20 of them. Not one from Europe or North America. Not one. But they're all from, 19 of them are from Asia and Africa. 11 of these top 20 countries where Christianity is growing at a rapid rate are from countries which have a Muslim majority. Get your head around that. And so you get a country. And by the way, I've got friends who've been coming to church here uh, over recent weeks. They've got their sons in hospital up at Ron North Shore. They they live in Foster, but they've been coming to church in the morning. And they recently returned from three years missionary service in Egypt. And they said, Graham, you wouldn't believe the courage of Christians in Egypt. Like, as you know, with the Muslim Brotherhood over there, there is incredible persecution of Christians. Churches being burnt. Christians being shot and beaten up. And these friends said, you wouldn't believe the Christians in Egypt. Like, they're so proud that they're Christian. Like, it's not a matter of hiding underground and kind of trying to conceal it. They stick crosses on the house. They got fish signs everywhere. Yeah, we're Christian. What are you going to do about it? Like, it's, he said, it's just phenomenal. Seriously, it's just, it's awe-inspiring. And uh, we can only hope and pray that we might have even a, a fraction of that sort of courage if persecution ever came to this country. You've got a country like Nigeria. You see, in these Muslim countries where Christianity is on the rise, of course, the militant Islamics are dead against the influence of Christianity. That's where the real violence is happening, like in a country like Nigeria, where where the pushback against Christianity is resulting in horrific horrific, um, uh, tragedies of of, of violence and, uh, and mayhem. There are 80 million Protestants in Nigeria. That's more Protestants than are in Germany where the Protestant revolution or Reformation began. Get your head around that. So, guys, you know, a lot of churches are not doing so well, but that's, no, that's not the fault of Jesus. That's just a poor reflection of their willingness to grasp what Jesus is trying to achieve. His, his church is being built in parts of the world that, that we, should, we should begin to learn more about, to be honest. So over the years of my ministry, I've kind of made a study. Why do some churches thrive and some churches barely survive? Why is that? 
What's the difference? And look, I've listed some elements. These are some characteristics which ensure the invincibility of the church. Just a few of them I want to share with you tonight. Here's the first one. The preeminence of Jesus. That's number one. Like ministry is not about egos. It's not about influence. It's not about power or prestige. It's not about buildings or programs, events or slick advertising. These things can help. These things can be a part of the total package. But it's not where it's at. It's about the truth and the power of the good news of God in Christ. That's, that's at the heart of churches that, that survive. That's at the heart of the invincibility of the church of Jesus Christ, the preeminence of Jesus himself. I love the reference in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 1 and following. Uh, we looked at this a few months ago, actually, in a morning service. where This is where Paul, having, having been roughed up a little bit, just roughed up a little bit in, in Athens, he, he tried to mix it with some of the intelligentsia up there and tried to get a little bit, a little bit fancy. Uh, in terms of his ability to argue and you know, mix it with all these highbrow intellectuals. And he, he sort of got a little bit roughed up where they sort of like, gee, Paul, you know, really, come on. And uh, he went to Corinth with kind of like his tail between his legs, in a sense. I'm, not, I'm exaggerating a little bit. But when you see what he wrote to the Corinthians, look at this. This puts it in perspective. In chapter 2, he says, when I came to you, he went from Athens straight to Corinth, right? That's the... That's the historical aspect of his journey. When I came to you, my friends, to preach God's secret truth, I did not use big words in brackets as I had in Athens or great learning in brackets as I had in Athens. For while I was with you, I made up my mind to forget everything except Jesus Christ and especially his death on the cross. So when I came to you, I was weak and trembled all over with fear. My teaching and my message were not delivered with skillful words of human wisdom, but with the convincing proof of the power of God's spirit. Your faith then does not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. And that's where it's at in a church that is being invincible. It's not, it's not about us. It's about him. Here's the second thing. The promotion of growth, not just numerical growth, but Growth in terms of service and spirituality and care and compassion, evangelism, growth in all of the areas, all the key areas of the church. Because you see, guys, in promoting growth, a church embraces inclusiveness. If you're committed to growth, inclusiveness is part of your DNA. has to be. Because if you're a narrow, judgmental little church then, and you're not interested in growth, then that's, there's the vibe you're giving off. It's not a vibe of inclusion. Churches that are committed to growth communicate openness, grace, forgiveness. They're not so much interested in where you've been, they're more interested in where you're going. More interested in your potential in Christ, more interested in your eternal destination. Jesus didn't say, I'm going to maintain my church. He didn't say, I'm going to sustain it, pause it, placate it. He said, I'm going to build it. I'm going to build my church. There's no, that's unequivocal. Here's the third thing, the priority of vision. The priority of vision. Northside has always been a church characterised by vision. Uh, going back to my predecessor, the founding pastor of Northside, Jay Bassick, uh, who spent um, 15 years here. Um, going back to him. Uh, no, I didn't hang out for one year just to beat the record, but it's, uh, Sam, Sam will break that record. Uh, we have. Um, Northside has always been a church characterised by, by vision. Um, Jay's vision 
was to establish the church here. And he looked around uh, 21, I think it was, um, warehouses before he found this one, which was on the original property, a warehouse for those who didn't know. And we converted it into a church. He did. And so he established the presence of Northside in this area. My great privilege has been to preside over the transition from a warehouse that was in need of some serious work uh, to this beautiful ministry complex, which will set us up for for years and years and years. That's been a great privilege of mine. For Sam and the team, he will have the privilege of of presiding over the next stage of Northside's development, which is going to mean increasingly understanding the changing nature of this area and the changing nature of Australian society and the opportunities that will increasingly arise for the kind of mission work we've just looked at tonight. He will be here, I hope and pray, when this church reaches that magical milestone of being debt-free. Can you imagine sitting on a board, as some of you will, presiding over how to distribute the proceeds of our conference centre every year, which this year will be around $700,000. You imagine sitting on a board that's going to preside over how you distribute that money to further the cause of Christ. Boy, I'm going to come back for that day when you declare debt freedom. I'll just sort of sit up the back there and somebody will say, oh, hi, you're visiting? You know, yeah, yeah, kind of. Uh, <laughs> But that'll be a great day. And that was, that was always part of the vision. That was, we, didn't get this, we didn't sort of go into this project to be in debt all the time. It was always part of the vision to establish a conference centre and a community and a, and a ministry centre where the conference centre would eventually be a, an incredible source of income for external mission. So when you talk about the invincibility of the church, we acknowledge the part harmony and unity plays. And here's the segue into the, the unity bit, okay? I've said many times over the years in, a one, in 101 different ways, the strength of unity is incalculable. Look, you know, for the size of the New Testament, not many of Jesus' prayers are recorded word for word. Yeah, there are references to Jesus going off into the mountains to pray and, you know, he took his disciples aside and they prayed. But, but there aren't many prayers recorded word for word when you think about it. So when Jesus' prayers are recorded word for word, my feeling is you better take notice of it. We better see what our Lord prayed about. We better look at his words. We better see what was on his heart, what really moved him to pray to his heavenly father specifically. And here's one of his classics in what is known commonly as the high priestly prayer. Here's Jesus in John 17, verse 11. Look what he says. Holy Father, keep them safe. This is the disciples. Keep my disciples safe by the power of your name so that they may be one just as you and I are one. Unity in the body of Christ. There's nothing like it. When a church is I said this morning, you know, when a church has mission and external focus as, as one of their primary aims, it doesn't have time to squabble. It doesn't have time or inclination to argue about things like, the colour we're painting the doors or, you know, whether we sing certain songs or whether we've pronounced a benediction. Or like, just, like those things are so incidental compared to the push to minister and serve. People have some strange ideas, though, about what unity looks like. People think that unity in the church is everybody agreeing with everybody else's viewpoint all the time. Now, it sounds like that's what unity is about. 
But in actual fact, in kingdom work, that's generally an indication of complacency. That's generally an indication of setting the bar so low that nobody's going to get upset. Let's just keep it all nice and cosy. We all know each other here. And, and let's not rock the boat. Let's just agree with everything. Look, I've worked. A huge part of my ministry has been taking on the role of a change agent to break that sort of thinking. And at times in my ministry, I've paid a pretty high price for that. Because that's tough work, to break through complacency. We don't want to change. We don't want new people because they might you know, want to do things we don't want to do. You've got to break through that. I quoted the other week that, you know, um, one of my colleagues got up once at a minister's conference and he said, you know, I worked it out in New South Wales. The, it takes a church of 60 people to keep a full-time minister, to, to keep the lights burning and to, keep the, to pay the salary and to you know, produce the church paper and so on. It takes about 60 people. He said, I further researched the fact that the average size Church of Christ in New South Wales then, hasn't improved sadly, was 60 people. The message was clear. We're all just setting, setting the bar at a height that's just aimed at survival. It's just sustaining what we're comfortable with. So that's not, that, that is not agreement. That is not unity, just everybody agreeing with everybody else. Nor is it agreeing with everything the pastor and the leaders say. I'm sorry, Sam, that I'm not sitting up for sort of like any kind of, you know, papal reign here. Um, you know, I've had my moments when I have what I call uh, papal fantasies, where it would be wonderful to be able to sort of like, you know, mm, I'm the senior pastor and you're going to do what I say. I mean, you can go to churches like that. You, you can go, some of you are from churches like that because you couldn't take it anymore. You couldn't take the abuse, the spiritual abuse. Uh, we don't operate like that here. Um, that's at the heart, of course, of, uh, of all of the major uh, cults in the church, in the, in the world. All the major extremist groups are all based on that, where the word of the leader is unquestioned. It's not healthy. It's not unity. Um, nor is unity suppressing my feelings of disagreement. This is where people say, look, I'm not happy, not really in favour. But I, I, I won't make a fuss, I'll just, just push it all down. But here's the, here's the problem, it comes out sometime. Usually in a way that's not very healthy or helpful. In marriage, for those of you who are married, I call it the burnt toast syndrome. <laughs> where here's a, here's a very uh, caring wife who knows her husband's under pressure and so he comes down late for breakfast. So she makes him a piece of toast, puts on the plate and he notices that it's burnt on one side. And he, he throws it across the room. He says, burnt toast, burnt toast. You can't even cook toast. You're just like your mother. You're hopeless. And she goes, whoa, that's a bit heavy for burnt toast. You know what I mean? I mean, but it's not burnt toast. It's not burnt toast. He's upset by the way she carried on at the works function the night before. She thought, he thought she'd embarrassed him a bit by sort of carrying on a little bit, saying some inappropriate things. He's unhappy with their love life. He's still carrying something that happened weeks ago. He, do, he hasn't got the ability to express what he's feeling. So it comes out in indirect ways that are eating burnt toast. In congregational life, it sometimes comes out at meetings, congregational meetings. And over the years, gosh, that's going to be a big chapter in my book. 
uh, my experience in congregational meetings because I've seen and heard some amazing things where people will get up all fired up and they'll ask a question, Mr. Chairman, what about... And I think, what, what, what in the world? If that guy had asked me this morning before the service, I could have answered that question. If that lady had given me a call during the week or sent me an email, we could have answered that real quick. But, oh, no, we save it for the meeting. Hmm. Because, you know, I've got a microphone and boy, I'm going to, you know, I've seen Jerry Springer and I'm going to really go for it, you know. I mean, golly. I mean, it's, and then so, so then pastors are left. And I've had the situation where you are patching up those kind of situations for weeks, months. I've been to meetings, congregational meetings in, in other places where my wife has, has broken down in tears. And it's just taken a long while to recover because you've seen her husband getting attacked and, and all kinds of things being said about him and about the team. You think, whoa, crazy. So you've got to have a mechanism where people can express what they're feeling. And this leads me to the next point, guys. Well, actually, it foreshadows a point I'm going to make about, about the ability. We've got, to, we've got to be able to sort of express divergent viewpoints. That's coming in a sec. But here's the next one. Unity within the body of Christ begins with a God-inspired vision. What does unity look like? That's what it doesn't look like, what I've just said. But what does it look like? Well, it begins with a God-inspired vision. That's where leadership comes in. And leadership is working with the, with the congregation and with the people of God for whom you're caring and developing in partnership with them a God-inspired vision. This is where we're going to head, guys. This is what we're going to put all of our resources into achieving. This is where we are. This is who we are. This is where we're heading. It means, it means painting a picture of a preferred future. And we've had a vision up till now and Sam and the, and the team will begin to paint a new vision. And that need not be a problem for anybody or a, a point of fear or, or, or uh, intimidation. This is all part of the deal. This is all part of transition. If, if I felt I, I had a grasp on the new vision for Northside, I mightn't be leaving. But I recognise at my stage of life, it's time to hand over to somebody else to create a new vision, which will retain the basic DNA of the church, but which will paint a preferred future in light of current circumstances and changing circumstances, you know. And so it means talking and planning and initiating. And basically, this is what people are being invited to support. When these guys stand up here as new members, they're being invited to support the vision of the church. The God-inspired, Christ-centered vision of the church. This is what people are being invited to support. But more than just the vision, unity within the body, and you actually probably could have put this one first, means giving assent to the foundational truths of the gospel. You see, guys, you see, guys this, this ensures a Christ-honoring Church, a Christ. This is this ensures that the church has Jesus at the centre, and that we're not just uh, ego tripping and meeting our own needs. We ask new members to publicly affirm their faith in Jesus Christ. Again, preeminence of Jesus. We teach, we preach the essential tenets of the Christian faith all the time, every week, week in and week out. We're preaching the essential truths of the gospel. And so we're asking people to give assent to that. That, that pulls us together in a unified way. Uh, there's the big, the big tick items, uh, ticks on the big box items, the big ticket items. Here's the next thing. Unity within the body of Christ involves the creation of a culture where it's okay to express divergent viewpoints. Thank you. <laughs> I heard that. <laughs> it's okay to express divergent viewpoints. That's healthy. Guys, you wouldn't know this, but like we're regularly responding to feedback. You know, as ministry team members, you know, we're, we're, 
You guys send emails, you make phone calls, you talk to us in the foyer. We're constantly responding to feedback about this and that, all kinds of things. And that's healthy. We invite that. It's, you've got to be able to express different viewpoints. And you know what? We allow, once the big ticket items are ticked off, we allow for a lot of diversity in this church. I'll give you a few examples. In the area of like spiritual gifts, we'd have a lot of different viewpoints here about spiritual gifts. We'd have a lot of different viewpoints here um, about the return of Christ and various theories around that. A lot of viewpoints here about uh, the whole thing of creation. Creationism versus alternative. And we don't get hung up about that. And we don't sort of, this is the way we, like some of these things, they're not essential. They they all speak of of a central truth, but you can approach them based on your background or your interpretation of the word from various points of view, and we welcome that. And and I could give you so many examples of that. But, and it's a big but, it's a big but, two things are crucial. How we share different viewpoints is crucial. I've already identified a couple of really poor ways. And so you're hoping to develop within the congregation a spiritual maturity where people can say, look, I need to talk with you because there are things happening that I'm just uneasy about. And that takes leadership that's not insecure at that point. Um, And this is where a lot of my colleagues, I've got to admit, do fall down. What do you mean you've got a problem? You know, well, maybe you've got another church. Yeah, well, look, that, you know, that's ridiculous. Sometimes it does mean another church. I've helped transition people like that. But most times it just simply means, well, okay, let's like to hear your views and let's work through this. Yeah, you know what? That's interesting. That's probably something we would not get involved in given our DNA and our overall vision, but I really appreciate you raising it. Like it's, just, it's, just, it's maturity, you know, and it, it's based on good, good, strong, healthy relationships. And here's the other thing. When we share divergent viewpoints, and again, this is where leadership comes in, eldership, ministry team, they must be in the context of the overall direction of the church. And it's effective leadership that knows the difference between ideas that are going to support the vision and ideas that are going to tear the vision down. I mean, I've no doubt we've probably got people, we have had people who would love to install a pipe organ here, uh, you know, and, uh, and have me dressed in robes. Actually, I wouldn't mind that. I, I kind of I, so don't mind dressing up a little bit. I, uh, I did a wedding once at an Anglican church and they said, you have to wear a robe. And uh, I did. It, was, it felt good. Um, <laughs> flowing. Uh, <laughs> helped me to fulfil some of those papal fantasies I talked about earlier, I guess. Um, <laughs> but, like, you know, and you'd have to say, well, like you wouldn't take that seriously. You'd have to say, to short circuit the whole process, you know what? That's interesting. You know, you've come from a city cathedral. You'd like to see a pipe organ here. Um, obviously, you weren't listening at Inside Northside when we said that we are a contemporary church and we're unashamedly a contemporary church. While ever guitars and drums and things are sort of in vogue in terms of contemporary music, they'll be up here. That, that's we're, we're trying to relate to the culture in the kind of musical um, musical ways in which the culture does its its music. So that's so you'd have to sort of. And when people, so you've got to watch that as, as in, 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 in leadership and, and sort of, that's the sort of pressure we put on our elders to make sure that any feedback is going to support the vision, not destroy the vision. Would you be surprised if I told you that when, we, when our elders come on board, we give them a sheet of paper and they have to sign this sheet of paper 
it's not like bequeathing all their worldly goods to the church if they die and all that sort of thing. Although that wouldn't be a bad idea, actually, Sam. I'd probably, I probably would have introduced that if I'd been staying. Um, <laughs> But it's simply a statement, a simple statement of the kind of church we are. And it includes that passage, that, that reference that we are a contemporary church, Christ-centred, really not, not excessively Pentecostal. It gets a bit specific. So that if we get an elder who wants to really rock the boat and reveals within a few months of being elected as an elder that they've got a, a hidden agenda that's, that's aimed at totally transforming the church, we can say, you know what, that's interesting because, like, uh, when you sign that form, uh, wow, what's that, you know? I introduced that because I, I, love you, I love you guys. I love this church. And I've seen churches um, divide over all kinds of issues when, when strong, definitive leadership would have prevented those things happening. So I introduced that, not as a controlling thing, but as a protection thing, just to make sure that the, the eldership we have on board at any one time is, is with us, philosophically, and, and in terms of the, Christ-like, uh, the, the, the Christ-inspired vision that we have here. Here's the next thing. I'm, I'm wrapping this up, guys. Um, unity in the church may mean sacrificing personal preferences in favour of corporate objectives. And I'm not talking about corporate in the business sense. This is like corporate togetherness, you know. The, the objectives that the church and the leadership agree to. And, and I take my hat off to so many people in this church, particularly, particularly, and honour them please, members of our morning congregation, whose background is, in many cases, very different to what we are doing here. Background is more organ, hymn, you know, many of our morning attenders in their 70s and 80s, 90s. But they have gone with that point beautifully. They've sacrificed personal preferences because they've seen the results of a more contemporary approach. And I, I, honor, I, I just thank God for them. That, that is because they are the kind of people who can make life difficult <laughs> If they like, not here, uh, but you know, um, because you know, that's a big ask. That's a big ask. And we've got people who, every time I see them in the morning, I just think, I just want to hold them because I know they've made that step and I love them for it. Okay. Guys, this all, let me bring this down to, uh, to a landing. I've got a story for you. It's one of my favourite stories. In my last couple of weeks, I can tell a couple of favourite stories, can't I? <laughs> It's in my groundbreaking book, um, Hope in 60 Seconds. Um, and um, So if, uh, if you bought that book, you may have read it. If you haven't, we have a few left. <laughs> a few boxes, that is. Um, okay, okay, a garage full. Okay, okay, you got me. All right. But they're going to be sold in Adelaide. Yay. All right. Woo. Yeah. <laughs> um, this, is a, this is a story that I believe brings, it brings the invincibility of the church and the strength of unity together in a way that I just find inspiring. I was in, it was in 1990, uh, as I recall, and I uh, was leading a tour in Europe. We were going off to uh, the Obermagal Passion Play in Germany. And we stopped off in England at a place called Salisbury Cathedral. Come on, chance to boast a little. Who's been to Salisbury Cathedral? Sandy, I see that hand. Yes, Catherine. Okay. Two or three of you. All right. Um, <laughs> Michael, you went to Salisbury Cathedral, didn't you? 
Yeah, think, think so. Ooh. Over, over-travelling, over-travelling. Okay. Uh, yeah, good. Okay. Salisbury Cathedral is a magnificent cathedral on the couple of hours' drive from London. And on this particular day, there was a flower show taking place. Now, Graham Agnew and flower shows don't, like, normally go together, you know. But you're a tour, tour, a tour leader, and so it was, you know, you had to go in. As I walked in, hundreds of people there, the guy, as soon as I walked in, the guy clipped the sort of little barricade across and I, I realised I was the last one in. I thought, oh, that's interesting. So, but I was soon to find out why. Because within seconds of me going into that church, a voice came over the, the PA. And there was hundreds of people and there's flowers, it's displayed all through the cathedral. This thing is cavernous. I mean, it's massive. And this voice came over the PA, beautiful English accent. It said, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's just turned 12 midday. Right, yeah. He said, welcome to Salisbury Cathedral. We're delighted to have you here for our annual flower show. Now, you may be a person with a Christian faith. You may be a person with some other faith. You may be a person with no faith. But at this point, at midday, we'd like you to join us for a brief prayer. And you can see a bit of ripple go through the crowd. Prayer. Well, he said, this is very important here at Salisbury Cathedral. Because we, we pause every day at midday for prayer. And he said, we've been doing this every day for 700 years. And the rippling soon turned into absolute stony silence as people just got a sense of what was being said there. 700 years. And my mind started a race. And he had a simple prayer, a beautiful, just an all-inclusive kind of prayer. And my mind started a race. Wow, all the things that would have happened around that church in 700 years. The Industrial Revolution, all the plagues, all the pestilences, all the fighting, all the, all the things that go on in, you know, you see in the movies. You know, and, and here's the thing, the church never stopped praying. They never stopped praying. Now, you could be thinking, well, you know, that's a, a cathedral, you know, these European cathedrals are also old and musky and, you know, nobody meets there on a Sunday. Not, not, not Salisbury Cathedral. You check the website. I did. And, and one of their aims is we want to be a church where people can encounter God. Our core values are integrity, generosity, compassion. That church is alive, albeit in a very old style complex. But just as I read their notices in the foyer and read their bulletin, they were going for it. Really inspiring, God-honouring vision. You see what I'm getting at? A great example of historical invincibility and unity. That's Salisbury Cathedral. Northside Community Church is a more contemporary, a more current example of invincibility and of unity. And I pray that will always be the case, guys. Preserve unity. Recognise that nothing will stop Jesus in his words, I will build my church don't let anything fool you otherwise. My final thought tonight, I want to bring a prayer. Sometimes prayers from the Bible just suit one's own personal prayer desires. And that's the case with this one from Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. I want to, uh, I want to read this to you. And this, Paul wrote this when he's in Rome and he was in prison. Picture me in Adelaide. Not in prison, I hope. Um, but, you know, just, just in Adelaide, right? And this is my prayer for you guys, right? When I'm over there in Adelaide. Uh, no. <laughs> I'll take that as a comment, not a question. Um, here's, here's, here's the prayer, right? One, verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 27. Now, the important thing is that your way of life should be as the gospel requires, 
so that whether or not I am able to come and see you, I will hear that you are standing firm with one common purpose and that with only one desire, you are striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul loved the Philippian church. That was his prayer for the Philippian church. I love the Northside church very much. And that's my prayer for you guys. So let's join in prayer, shall we?